Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In this episode, I talked to two entrepreneurs who have recently set up a new residential childcare service based in North Ayrshire. During the interview, I hear about the learning that's taking place with regard to setting up a new service. I ask questions in relation to how residential childcare is currently used. We also explore the interviewee's views in, in relation to the link between the third, private and public sector. We also explore the origins of the organisation's name, the National Care Review, qualification debate and current discussions around physical restraint. This was an interesting interview and I think it was good to speak with people within our organisation at the very start of their journey. So without further ado, please welcome Jay Elliott and Justine Irvin. Hi folks, thanks very much for taking part in the podcast and it's the first time I've actually interviewed two people in the one go so it's a, a new experience for me. Um, so first just tell us a bit about yourselves and what your connection is to residential childcare in Scotland. Well, when I was a young girl, um, I experienced a few adverse childhood experiences um, and it gave me a desire to understand human behaviour and mental processes. And that kind of led me to apply for a psychology degree. This gave me a much deeper understanding of not only myself, but others around me. And it was during my fourth year um, in my honours year that I applied for residential childcare as the RCCW. And in the end, that, that was the environment that I wanted to kind of continue my career with. Um, and it kind of, I it definitely helped change the course of my, my life. Okay. Um, I'm Justine and um, I started um, my career off really in early child um, childcare and I went to college, did early edu- education in childcare and then that progressed on to uh, BA Education and Social Services. Um, at that moment in time, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to work in schools. And it was actually the placement that I was put on um, while I was at university that significantly chose my choice of career path, which was into residential care. Um, and I've been there ever since. Um, I worked for a quite well-established private company um, for 10 plus years. And um, and that's been my career ever since. Okay. So in terms of you've just recently st- set up your own business, can you tell me a bit about that and essentially what inspired you to the two years to set that up? Well, Justin and I both worked together um, for a number of years. Um, we supported a specific young person who was about five or six years of age mm-hmm. when she came to mm-hmm. us. And she was in quite a big children's home. There was 10 kids. Um, and we recognised that she was kind of losing her identity in such a big place. Mm-hmm. And we understood the kind of there was maybe nothing in between the intensive foster care and then residential care. So we kind of wanted to try and see if we could bridge that gap. And what we realised was for some kids, they just need more than what a family home can offer. So it's trying to kind of fill, like what Jade said, fill the gap in between. Um, if a child doesn't meet those needs or can't sustain a foster placement, then what is what else is out there for them rather than a large residential home? Yeah, okay. And that's where we started the planning process, really. Yeah, it, it really was kind of around this this child. Um, we were so taken by her and um, we really understood what her needs were and 
And I think we, we realise that happens for a lot of yeah. children. Um, they kind of get lost in the system and lost in that big environment. And they don't, they can't really find their sense of identity or who they are because they morph into everybody around about them. Mm -hmm. And so how do you guys intend to, to minimise that happening, the kind of institutional kind of nature associated with residential childcare? What's your, what's your plan to, to, to prevent that from happening? Prevent that from happening. So first of all, it's the environment. I think that's huge. Something that we speak about a lot is um, the change of environment. The, the, the impact a change of environment has in a young person's life is really significant. And um, the child doesn't change, their environment does. And with that comes growth and development. So when we were starting off looking at um, potential properties, we didn't want a six, seven, eight, nine, ten bedded house. It had to be very homely, small and at most, we wanted four, four um, yeah. bedrooms. And I think that in itself creates more of a family-like environment. Um, sometimes, like we mentioned before, kids can get lost in a big house. And when you've only got four kids there, you can give them that one-to-one -one intensive support that they need. Um, and it's not about managing a larger house and um, trying to, if you think of you, if you have more than four kids, then the amount of staff that you're going to have alongside that as well it can be really really busy yeah i also yeah. think that um we aim to provide trauma-informed care um so we kind of follow the process of a, a model called judeterminants three-stage trauma treatment model and the first stage of that is really all about kind of bringing the kid back to basics providing safety security doing silly things like baking cakes you know sitting watching a movie being like a normal family and doing the kind of things that don't cost a lot of money, but just lots of time. Um, and I think that's a huge part of um, the model that we're trying to provide. Okay. And, and you, you just get your registration approved a few days ago. Um, so in your kind of setup uh, process, what have you learned so far? A professional painter. <laughs> aye, aye. Everything, well, I would say there was lots of hurdles and barriers in the way, but ultimately that is there to protect the children. Um, and it challenges us as care providers to determine whether or not we are suitable. Are we suitable to provide that care for um, kids that are, are required to be looked after? Yeah. Um, so there, ha there has been, I think, for so long we've worked doing the job um, and we had to kind of take a step back and realise that there, there's a business side to this too. There's things that we um, involved in. Um, that we've had to learn along the way. And it's been a huge learning curve for us. And it's it's actually been amazing, hasn't yeah, it? It definitely has. Um, it's, been a, it's been a journey. Yeah. So no, that's I would great. say there was, there's too many to mention. <laughs> I, I, I definitely, and it's that bad, but, you know, I think in my experience, like I setting up uh, a new um, service, it's about, about having mentors and people you can talk to and, and get that, you know, that kind of practice in the moment advice and it's the same in when you're working residential care. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Sorry, on you go. To have um people who have been in, in this position before um and had really, really successful care resources to provide some guidance and support for us. Lots of pointers there. Yeah, and we couldn't have done it without them. So we really appreciate that. Yeah that, that's that's worth its weight in gold, isn't it? So just, just just in terms of your own kind of knowledge uh, as a team. You know, the two of you, essentially, 
do you think residential childcare in Scotland is currently used well? Do we think it's used well? So certainly in our experience in residential care, there has been a, a huge shift, a positive shift in the care that children um, receive. But to answer your question, is it used well? We, we've had a long chat about this. Yeah, we spoke at length this morning about it. And I think if a placement is right um, in terms of the environment and the service that's on offer, then it is used well. Mm -hmm. But quite often kids are placed um, within uh, services where it doesn't meet their needs. Um, or and, and that's either the, the services fault for accepting it through the referral process or it's the social worker needing a placement or whatever the... And that's something that if, something it's, that can't be. if it's planned and it's identified mm -hmm. as a right resource for that young person, then that's great, it is being used well. But when it's a last resort and they've exhausted every other yeah. avenue and it's a case of, right, well, this is the only place that you can go just now, that needs to be a real short-term solution and not end up a long-term um, placement mm -hmm. for a child. Um, so it's a, quite a difficult question because for mm -hmm. some young people, yes, it's it's been amazing and we've, we've um, been lucky to work with some people who have care experience and what there's, we've had two different views on that and yeah. um, one of which has been residential care changed my life and I speak to my care workers all the time that supported me through those really difficult years of my life um, and then we've got somebody else who hadn't had such a great experience in care but has now come back in to work in this line of work to be a part of that journey of making positive change for kids so it is a really difficult question but I think if um, the referral process and admissions process can get it right, then um, it should be really positive for children. Yeah, and on that, so in terms of the, the referral process and kind of getting it right, how, how would you like to see the third private and public sector kind of linking up? What would the kind of utopia be um, to, to make that, you know, the, kind of the likelihood that things are going to go well more likely. It would definitely be useful um, for information to be more readily available in terms of services that are on offer for like maybe say young people that are in the practice to know what's out there in the third sector or the public sector or to make the processes easier when you're applying to do different things that are involved like maybe the services. Um, I definitely think that since we've created our Twitter page for today's yes. tomorrow <laughs> we've noticed a huge community where all the sectors have come together and, yeah. and it's, it's it's a really, really nice thing to see. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if we can uh, maybe start on that kind of platform and build that, mm -hmm. then it's it'd be lovely to see the link up. Already yeah. we've uh, kind of been in touch with different local authorities um, who have been great, very supportive, one of which has come out and is going to offer some training for our staff to kind of talk about the ex their expectation of us as a care service and what we can provide. Um, and it, it kind of been a, that kind of collaborative integrated services we want to call it it kind of stimulates innovation and shared goals um, and if we can get that right as the professionals and we can communicate and work together then ultimately we're going to get it right for the children in our care yeah and you mentioned the name of your your organization today's tomorrow um so it's important to highlight that so that's the name of the, the organization Definitely. so so, mm -hmm. so how, how did that come about how did you choose that name and what was like i thought or kind of mindset behind that? You know, um, it was 
the, the true story about it is that um, the young person that I was speaking about earlier as to why we started this process, um, she had a favourite song and it was our favourite song and it was kind of based around the words of today's tomorrow night, um, which is, no, yesterday's tomorrow night, um, and we came up with the today's tomorrow because really today's children are tomorrow's future. Mm -hmm. um, so if we can get it right today, then the future's going to look positive for everybody. Yeah, that's... And that's basically it, really. <laughs> I, it's, it's really, really catchy. So uh, kind of like, I suppose it chimes with kind of what people are talking about, you know, within the National Care Review. Uh, and the subsequent document that was published called the Promise. So, what you know in terms of the, the Promise makes a range of recommendations. So, how how will your service can meet those recommendations? I think for us, um, reading those recommendations and really relating it to our kind of model and. It, those for us were just granted in the kind of service that we were going to provide, um, which was really nice to see because it, it kind of validated that what we are intending to do is what everybody in this kind of line of work um, believes is the right thing for children. So I think initially is it not only providing a kind of scaffolding of support around the child, but including the parents in that. Um, we're really big on building relationships, children building their relationships with their parents, carers, family members that they're still, they're still in touch with. Um, and that's something that we really want to push forward. Yeah, the values and the recommendations behind the promise we recognise as being part of our service was validating because we take it for granted that we're just going to support the children and young people mm -hmm. to see their families or facilitate contact or, you know, have that scaffolding that includes mm -hmm. staff training and... And getting it right for sisters and brothers, I mean, that's obviously amazing now. And yeah. the type of property that um, that we have, it would suit a family perfectly, um, the layout of it. Um, and we have specific areas within the house that are not, that are like kind of in the basement area, shall we say, that we have like a sensory room, therapeutic room that can really be utilised for family group work. Um, and we just think it, it's really suited. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I just, it was it was interesting to read the promise. Yeah. yeah. I, I would so, hate to say that we, we had um, already written it before it was, but you know, what we had was behind. <laughs> yeah. And it was just lovely to, it was lovely to see that. Oh, that's great. So you mentioned kind of qualifications, uh, Justine, and, you know, what are your thoughts on the whole qualification debate and what type of qualification ideally should a residential worker possess? Well, I think there's a wide range of um, skills, qualities, personalities needed in this line of work to create because it's a family home you're trying to create. So that there's a huge range of um, skills required. Um, initially in the start, the residential care staff are recruit, should be recruited on the basis of their values rather, rather than their educational levels. However, there is a need for that academic qualification. There is a need for um, developing um, skills and qualities and knowledge. And I think we need, you need a mix of both. Yeah. I mean, I do think that academic qualifications are important in a service but it takes a village to raise a child. So mm -hmm. I think that there might be somebody that comes in that's got it 
you know, like an older person who's got like a really good hearty feel about them and makes the dinners and for them, we would absolutely support them to get the qualifications that are necessary mm -hmm. through the AAAC, yeah. for instance. But yeah. um, when we are interviewing staff, we really do interview the person and not what's on paper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking back to the introduction and Justine, you had done an education and social services qualification. Yes. Aye. Yeah. So do you think that particular qualification is a good one? Like for, so you think people coming through that, you know, the recruitment process who had that qualification, I, would you say that one fits quite well? Definitely. I think um, the good thing about the education and social services is there's so many different routes in it. And you can, I mean, I've had people that I went to university with are now lecturers um, at colleges or they've gone into teaching. Um, so there's, and then I've gone into residential childcare. So with the BA education and social services, you can to go down, but it also talks a lot about collaborative working and integrated services and how all these people, all these professionals can come together. Um, and I think that's really useful because although we talk about it, sometimes it, it just doesn't happen. We like to think that we're going to be collaborative. We like to think that we're going to be integrated, but really are you? And that's something that today's, uh, today's tomorrow we intend to do. Um, what I also will say about um, the importance around qualifications and stuff, but um, also the importance around like who we employ based on their values and things. Um, here at Today's Tomorrow, Justin and I have created a training matrix. So we provide the basics of what we know in our um, qualifications. So like from a psychological point of view, um, from a CBT point of view, um, there's quite a lot about um, the brain and behaviour within the safe crisis management training. Mm -hmm. So we give staff the basics of that before they're on the floor. Um, so I think I think yes, it is important to have qualifications, but it's also important to mm -hmm. have it have the the values, the values behind it yeah. because we can then you know provide the the, the basics for um, yeah. understanding. And that's that's essentially what's come through the promise as well is that you know that that some of the people or quite a lot of the people who were interviewed in terms of the, the process that kind of led to the, the recommendations with the promise. Highlighted the fact that you know having a strong value base is more important than the qualifications. So that kind of does sit quite neatly with, with you know those with lived experience. I've said as well, um, and and also Jade, you'd mentioned that she takes a, a village to raise a child. I was just thinking back to E. Milligan uh, when I interviewed him in the first podcast, and he'd mentioned that as a society, Scotland is still pretty much a violent culture. You know, there's a lot of violence. It's like you know, just if you look, you know, right, you know, through the kind of that particular lens, you will see a lot of kind of toxic masculinity. You know, even the kind of, you know, for kind of a female perspective, um, there's that kind of um, what they call the kind of orange culture, and, and and from that, Ian Milligan suggests that in respect to physical restraint, which I'm going to ask you a wee question on, that to actually minimise or to, or to eradicate physical restraint it takes for a whole societal shift. So I was just kind of wondering what your thoughts are in respect to physical restraint and, um, you know, sh and should it be banned in, in, in Scotland? So we're fortunate enough um, here to have two safe crisis management trainers. Um, so like you just spoke about, um, when staff are recruited, they will be provided with safe crisis man management training. That enables our staff to be confident and uh, competent at 
building positive relationships with children, uh, utilising the de-escalation techniques, understanding the behaviours to the root of those behaviours um, and working with that young person to build on successful coping strategies. And if staff can get that right and we can utilise that training to its full potential, then ultimately we're going to reduce um, physical intervention and holding safely. Um, now, we will always be part of that journey and the re reduction in, in restraint. And really, safe crisis management is a 24-hour curriculum, um, and it's fantastic. And their guiding principle is the least restrictive alternative, and that should always be utilising your de-escalation techniques and the skills and the relationship you have with that young person. But I think from our experience in working in residential childcare, there are those times where we feel it's necessary. Uh, a safe hold could be necessary because a young person's really putting themselves in significant danger. And that's a, that could be um, a matter of life or death for a, uh, a young person. So to answer your question, and do we think it should be banned? Not necessarily, no. I, I feel like like I mentioned before, um, some of the, the colleagues that we're working with have had care experience and they've openly said that if, if I wasn't held safely, then I might not be here today. Um, I think and that's the, huge. One of the concerns for me about it maybe being banned is that we start to criminalise even more mm -hmm. young people, mm -hmm. um, but also maybe the drain on police forces and things like that as well. Um, I think can maybe take that into consideration when mm -hmm. answering that question. And it's all really about, it's about your ethos and your staff team. And I think that's what it comes down to. Um, we spoke earlier on about environment and how that has a huge impact on a child's how, how that child behaves um, and if you can create a real safe feeling around them um, built up, upon positive relationships um, then you're going to see a lot less of that aggression and um, that need for physical restraint. And I think the house is small enough um, with four, four, hopefully four children here that um, all their staff will know in depth each child you know um, and providing cognitive behavioural therapy skills to staff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that we can try and help alleviate maybe certain anxieties they've got, um, use lots of different tools to try and help their behaviour or help them feel better about themselves, mm -hmm. help them understand their thought processes and why they behave a certain way. Mm -hmm. Then I think all this collectively will definitely um, decrease the safely holding mm -hmm. um, statistics within today's tomorrow. So. Right. Fantastic. So this is a kind of question that Kind of like to ask, you know, individuals just a bit to go back to your younger days in practice uh, and think about, you know, if you could back yourself a bit of advice, you know, what would that be that would help you, you know, in your in your practice today? What, what I, think I think it's pretty simple for me. Um, I think it's just be more in the moment. You right. know, see when you're sitting with that child and or that young, just be in the moment with them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thanks, I think for me, um, it would be, I think when I was starting off in this line of work and you, a young person was very emotional or very angry and your initial instinct is to fix that. How do I fix that? How do I, I help them right now? Um, and really, through my experience, it was just validate their feelings. Um, it's all right for them to be upset and angry about that because if I would be upset and angry about that too and not trying to fix everything right away 
give them time. And I think a lot of people, they, and they do it with really good intentions, but it actually sometimes can escalate a situation and validating that young person's feelings and just sitting with them and uh, giving them time can sometimes be enough. Um, so I think that's a bit of advice I would give myself. Um, okay, that's great. Thank you very much. And the final question that I've got is that, you know, in terms of this podcast, which has been very informative, what would you like the listeners to take away from it, you know, if it was anything, you know, to come moving forward? When I was speaking to one of my staff there um, who had who was care experienced, she said still to this day she mm-hmm. feels that she feels that stigma um, when she tells people that she's been in care. Mm-hmm. So I think it's maybe I don't know how think more about it. Think more about what it's about and yeah. the purpose of it. Yeah. Okay. If you haven't read the promise, read it because it's it's amazing and it's it is really good. And um I think that like you're saying, Jade, that if you're not in this line of work. It's really difficult to understand. It's, un- it's difficult to understand those layers that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's very true. And I suppose just finally, it's like, I really thank you two guys for giving your time up today. I know it's been a, a really busy, uh, well, busy, busy period. But yesterday was your open day, uh, and I know how kind of frantic these kind of things can be in terms of organising yes. them. So it's been a really good week actually. Aye, uh, so that, that's that, that's really good to hear, and I certainly wish. The organisation and the two is all the best moving forward, and hopefully we can catch up again soon uh, to see how things have kind of went. Maybe I don't know six months time or something. Uh, but it's great to catch up that kind of journey. I think. Uh, but uh, Jade and Justine, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much to Jade and Justine for taking part. I think it would be good to revisit the interview with Jade and Justine in around about a year's time to see what learning has taken place and how the organisation has evolved during quite a challenging period in history. As always, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast and please share the podcast across your networks. And if you'd like to take part, do get in touch. Thank you. <laughs>